This week on Kettle of Fish, Rachel Mason stops by to talk about futuristic clowns and soul-penetrating music. Welcome to our after show. We call Kettle of Fish the No Politics Laughter Show. It's time for Kettle of Fish. No debates, hate, or arguments allowed on Kettle of Fish. It's like a Willy Wonka psychedelic acid trip. So hooray for Kettle of Fish. Alrighty, guys, welcome to Kettle of Fish, the show after the show, the talk after the talk, the 30-minute artistic money shot after the one-hour political foreplay and what an hour it was. I am your seafaring podcasting captain of the airwaves, Nick the Saucy One Catsaurus, broadcasting to you live, as always, from the very top of Meth Mountain. And I also want to introduce my futuristic, pessimistic, nihilistic, stylistic call raven when it's time to walk down the aisle rel- producer who kicks it the logistics the beans and cornbread terrific heading to agt because this is her ticket the soon to be seen on tv prizer so much wiser than saucy carrying a suitcase of drugs from pfizer i can't surprise her i can't deny her i can't defy her so with no further ado i want to introduce to you our very own maven goddess from under the sea it's the oh my gosh how many hours did that take you? Like that, it that was. That took was me a- five minutes, surprisingly. <laughs> it just flowed out like a creative volcano. Wowza. Yes. Um, that is me. And I don't know how to follow that now. <laughs> yeah, you're like, oh, I, I, ID, ID now. Like you've just totally gone Neanderthal. All right, let me get my co host in here. A girl who loves clowns, past, present, or future, um, saves crickets. Drinks vodka and kicks ass all while wearing a shiwi. Our network's selfless inner self-image. Fern the moist voice heart. Oh, my shiwi. I still haven't found my shiwi. I think I need to get a strap-on shiwi. Maybe that would help my We situation. need to start a Kickstarter, find Fern shiwi, and we could have like a weird yeah. and scavenger. I, I think... I think that's necessary, but I do want to say, you know, in honor of our previous guest, I went without brushing my teeth because, you know, he's very into dental hygiene and he's not our president and he should be our president, our benevolent overlord and pony man, uh, Vermin Supreme. But in honor of today's guest, because she does not yet have a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, I went without makeup in protest that this has not happened yet. So I'm protesting on both shows today. You were almost like black block anti-fi protesting levels today. Now you just need to go on Twitter and like insult a bunch of people, Fern. You know, I'm on my box. I'm not going to be defined by my maiden form, and I'm going to make it happen. Every little bit helps. Fair enough. All right. Um, I want to jump right in. If I'm a little hoarse today, it's because last night me and Dee and the children worked at a haunted house for Casa, which Dee, I never know what your official title is at Casa. It's so long. What's your title? I I am the Program Development Coordinator, which is a moniker that was given to me after I literally invented my job. I was like, hey, I can do these 500 things. Give me a job now. Um, yeah, Because he started then, as an intern. I did. And um, the nonprofit world is one of those things you don't do because of money ever because it would be stupid to try that. Um, but, yeah, we, we did that for charity last night. There's a really great um, haunted experience uh, around here called Dreadwoods. And all of their profits go to local charities. They only ask that the charities send a few volunteers to help out work a little bit. 
Um, and so we had our turn last night and it was a lot of fun. Like surprisingly, it was, I, I would totally do that again for no money. Let me bore the masses with my Dreadwood story. Cause this was the first time I've ever worked a haunted forest or haunted house. And I didn't get much direction at all. The woman's like, just put this mask on, stand behind that tree and scare the shit out of people. Yeah, so was I was great. like, all right, I can do that. <laughs> I, you know, I scare people on Facebook with my secret liberal cabal th- threads. But anyways, <laughs> So this high school kid was working the other tree. There's two trees, and you walk between them, and there's these bodies hanging in hefty bags for upside down from the trees. And I was like, hey, I'm trying to talk to him. He's very shy and introverted. And I've got this big giant axe handle I fell, I found, you know, like three feet long. It doesn't have the axe on it. And I'm dragging it behind me and limping and mumbling to myself, trying to get into character. Because I'm like, any fucking job worth doing, you know, it's worth doing well. And, dude, I turned around, and his little ass just, like, ran away. I think he has to be reassigned, because I was, like, just being so scary, just trying to get into character. So what happened was the first group comes through, and I have no experience doing any of this. And about 20 feet in front of the tree, there is a steel pole that used to be a clothesline, one of those old-timey clotheslines. So I run, I scream, everybody screams, I jump out from behind a tree, and the idea was I was going to run to this pole and just bang on the pole and be like, make it stop, make the voices stop, and I hit the pole so hard with the axe handle, it breaks in half, and half the axe handle flies like right, whizzes right past the back of their heads, and I was like, oh shit, I need to take this down a notch, I'm getting a little bit too passionate, right D? A little bit, but it, it was still... Yeah, I, I'm surprised I'm not a little more hoarse. I got to play an old cranky man, and part of my job was basically to scream at these people to come downstairs out of this dollhouse area. And I'm like, get out of my house! Who said you could come in my house? What's wrong with you? Blah, 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 blah. Uh, and I, I had a few people who were like, oh my gosh, that looks just like my dad. Wait, that sounds like my dad! <laughs> Beautiful. I did scare someone to the point when I jumped out, she was like, you stupid motherfucker. And got very angry. I was like, did you think we were doing like some kind of horror interpretive, like non-interactive horror interpretive dance? Like, I don't understand what you thought was going to happen. Of course, you're going to get scared. And I heard other kids were actually kind of getting cussed out. People were getting angry because they were just jumping out and scaring them. They weren't touching them. Yeah, that's their job. But it was all good. The scariest well, part last night, though, was the porta potties and the fact that they had a cop working there who had on a bulletproof vest. Yeah. And I was like, "Yeah, this is America now—a a fun house with just kids." And the cop is like, basically dressed for war. Oh, we scared him. <laughs> we did. Like our room, did. we startled him a few times. He's like, "Oh my gosh!" We have this little, like, seven-year-old maybe, and we call her Scary Mary, and she's terrifying. She's all dolled up and everything, and she's got a knife and fake blood in the whole. Yeah, she I saw screamed. her. She was amazing. Yeah, she's great. And the cop comes in. He's like, "Oh my god, you are the scariest thing I've seen tonight." And we're like, "Yes, we've got the scariest part of the thing." Yeah. Anyway. Well, the cool thing is this year, my kids, uh, you know, three of them are trick-or-treating age, but one of them is not. And last year, he just kind of hung out and passed out candy. But I told him this year, I'm like, he's he's going to be 15 in December, so he's almost 15 years old. And I was like, dude, I was like, instead of just hanging out and being on your computer, I was like, why don't you dress up and just scare the crap out of everybody? And our neighborhood is very wooded. I mean, we're in the heart of Virginia Beach, but our neighborhood is pretty wooded. Um, you know, it's not super well 
Bullet, and uh, he is already going crazy with ideas on how to just scare the living bejesus out of right all these little kids. And I told him, any bags that are dropped, if they run away, that's your candy, man. <laughs> Yeah, I you wouldn't. Have it. I wouldn't um, provoke him to that point. <laughs> Jeez. All right, um, D. We got to get our guest in here. Why don't you tell everybody we're kind of going on hiatus. We don't have a whole lot of other shows um, scheduled out for the rest of the year because it is the holidays, and we are going to be traveling with our new web series, right? We are. Um, we are going to be working on our new web series. So keep an eye out on our YouTube channel for that. Um, Headed to Branson in two weeks. Yes, we are. We're going to go nerd out with uh, King of the Nerds contestant. Uh, Rachel, and I'm going to video as much of my America's Got Talent audition as they allow me to. Uh, before and they... we just got an offer to go play mini golf at the Vermin Supreme Ranch. See, you know, Woo-hoo! I mean, things are coming up Millhouse. Um, so yes, keep an eye out on our YouTube channel. Of course, that is under Tin Can Media. Um, and keep an eye on our website, which is, of course, www.tincan.media. That is the entire address. There's no .com, just tincan.media. Hit enter. Boom, you're there. Uh, we will have a show with um, Meryl Hathaway on November 5th. And you may have seen her on last season of The Good Place, which is probably the best new Ted Danson show ever. Um, and she's going to be on a show. Well. I was closed minded about you immediately. Were. And then I went back and watched the first season on Netflix and I was D I was so wrong. It yep. seemed like a stupid premise. I love oh, it. It was adorable. I love it so much. Uh, so yes, definitely keep an eye out on that. We'll probably do a couple of uh, pop-up shows here and there because we don't know how to take a break and we like to talk to people. So just keep an eye on everything. And of course you can always check us out on Facebook. We're always there. I almost always accept friend requests as long as you speak English. So yeah, we're, we're everywhere, man. Everywhere. All righty. Speaking of everywhere and everything, who do we have on today? Today we have on, uh, somebody, I, you know, we always try to say they're an artist, they're a musician, they're this, they're that, they're a comedian, whatever. I don't think she fits in a box. She's a force of fucking creative nature. (laughs) Yes. Today we have the incredibly unique, always talented Miss Rachel Mason. Rachel, thank you so much for calling in today. I know you are insanely busy. So many projects going on. Hi. Hi. Can you hear me? We can hear you loud and clear. Oh, cool. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. (laughs) Yeah, I've got to tell you, man, and and I'm not just (laughs) saying this because we're on the air. Um, Right off the bat, we've had almost like 200 guests on the show. A lot of them are icons in their creative field. But this is the most overwhelming episode research-wise I think I've ever had it done. Like, you have such an amazing body of work. I mean, it's absolutely staggering. I feel like I need another (laughs) six months just to fucking scratch the surface of the beautiful and brilliant world of Rachel Mason. I mean, your body of work is insane to me. (laughs) Wow. Well, I I guess that's a... Now that uh, I've staggered you with compliments. Yeah, you have a little because, you know, I'm just in my own little uh, universe doing my thing and I occasionally pop up and hear what people have to say about it. So uh, now, thank you. I appreciate that. 
Well, let's kind of talk about your body of work because I was talking with Dee the other day and I was like, when I was showing her a bunch of your videos because I'm the one who usually takes in the most of the guests. Dee does all the back behind the scenes stuff. And I was like, how? I don't understand how this girl is not more well known. And then I started thinking about like your mind frame. It, after 20 years of creating such compelling work, and such just beautiful, aesthetically pleasing, beautiful con like content, are is it extremely frustrating that you haven't broken through, or is mainstream success something that you don't even really care about? Hmm. Um, gosh, that's so interesting. I well, I I would love it if it was just easier to make my work. Really, that's kind of uh, you know, I as as shocking as it sounds, I actually spend a lot of my time writing emails or, you know, doing grant research or um, having meetings and things that, you know, all surround the work. And I would love to just uh, be able to every single day dive in and do all the work. And I think whatever it would take to make that easier would be great for me. Um, and yeah, in terms of having recognition, um, again, it's also just to serve the purpose of if if, if it makes it easier to accomplish what I need to accomplish. Uh, I would love that. So yeah, it's it, anything that makes me have get to do less of the many hats that I have to wear uh, would be great. So I more and more I'm getting, um, you know, actually I think t listening in right now is a really cool record label from Sweden called Sublunar Society. And they are going to be releasing an anthology of some of my CDs. So I have these really interesting unique people that have come to find me as well, just like you, I guess. And I think I, I definitely have a, a niche uh, audience, but it's, it's cool to me if that audience would grow. Uh, that would be great. <laughs> but I, I haven't done the due diligence on the business side like maybe other artists have that would um, allow more um, commercial success perhaps. So... Yeah, I don't really have a right to be frustrated if I haven't done, you know, I don't go out on auditions. I just kind of sit in my world and do the work and try to get it, you know, done. Interesting. So, well, I had yeah. to thank Sublunar Society, too, because they really promoted the hell out of the show. And they were just amazing <laughs> to work hand in hand with. So I think you're definitely on the right track. I feel good things coming down the line for you working with these guys. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the people that gravitate towards what I do. I mean, there's a lot of other different, interesting, awesome people I could mention just like them, but they're the people that, you know, get involved with what I do or, or know about my work definitely seem to, I have really cool champions, people that uh, do what they can. And um, yeah, so I feel grateful for those sublunar societies out there that, uh, that find me. And um, because yeah, it is like a full-time job, I think, to just do the uh, the hustle side of art, and that's probably what I should do more of. But I, you know, that I, I don't. So, so I, you know, that's part. Well, of, let uh, me tell you, I cannot do what <laughs> I do if it wasn't for D doing the grunt mm. work, and I don't think I thank she her has. enough for doing mm -hmm. that, D. But I mean, you're just amazing at doing that background stuff, D. Hey, somebody's exactly. got to do it. Yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah, okay. I think a lot of artists are, are dependent on the people people don't realize are doing that. So, <laughs> yeah. 
Well, and also, I know I read a little bit that you're a bit of a hermit and that you get into like kind of social <laughs> situations and get anxious. But I started thinking about how you have so many great varying interests. It, it, do you think kind of being isolated gives you the freedom and the time to pursue so many different interests? Where if you were out there like kind of mingling and networking and partying, you wouldn't be able to focus on these 20 different amazing things you do? <sighs> God, I just don't know. I mean, I, I, I wish I was more uh, socially capable. I, I have a part of my brain that just gets really nervous in social scenarios. But you know, it's it's something. Uh, I, I I remember in art school actually, this very famous art critic Jerry Saltz loved my work, but came up to me afterwards and he was like, you know, your your social anxiety issue is, you know, he I, he was talking in public and I was so unable to uh communicate i was very uh shy that's not going to serve you well <laughs> so i think actually the artists and people that are more outgoing in social scenarios it, it serves them really well in terms of uh you know like what i was saying it's it's easier to to do your work if if it gets further out there um so yeah i i just sort of feel like that's a um a bit of a handicap, but it's also just who I am. You know, I really, uh, I, I feel the happiest in my little isolated world, writing songs and, and doing these things. And I do have a really wonderful uh, collaborators that have been with me throughout the process over the years. And so it's not total isolation. And I, you know, have, I think, the ability to communicate. I'm not a total hermit, but I think there's something with artists in general where there's a balance between um being a hermit to work like where it comes from is actually usually a very deeply isolated place and then you know you're thrust into a social world where you really have to engage so it's kind of a constant back and forth i wish i had that balance right fern i'm kind of like <laughs> just a hundred miles an hour a hundred percent of the time <laughs> yeah, but there's, you know, there's a certain amount of vulnerability when you throw your art out there and you throw your heart and your soul and, it, you know, all these thoughts, ideas, imagination, hopes, dreams, like everything, um, you just kind of throw it out there and say, here, what do you think, world? Um, so mm -hmm. the, being an isolationist, you know, as far as the creative aspect is probably hugely important because it gives you, you know, at least in my perspective, you know, time to really like gather exactly what you want to say and what you want to do. But the vulnerability factor of throwing it out there, um, as you said, you appreciate all the supportive people that you have and have had along the way. That's hugely important to surround yourself by those types of people who appreciate what you do and the vulnerability factor that's out there. Because it is, I don't think people look at the arts um, and understand how much goes into that of, of a person's mm. being. And mm. I don't think it's ever appreciated fully just in the masses, but those people that are close to you that are supportive are hugely important, and they need to be hung on to and appreciated. Yeah, that's a great point, right, Rachel? Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I have to say I'm pretty much uh, indebted, I think, to the people that have uh, stuck with me. Because I, I definitely, you're right, I don't have a... Uh, a linear clear path and I haven't had commercial success and I haven't kind of pursued the things in a, in a traditional way where, okay, you do this, then you do that. I've really followed where um, individual ideas have taken. You know, I, I do feel like I, I just 
commit myself to the concept that's in front of me. And um, so, yeah, it really takes the people that uh, are willing to kind of join with this journey that I'm on. Uh, you know, wh- who most of them, I will say, are, are artistic people themselves, so they understand that. I would, you know, I know that, for instance, the people at the Sublunar Society are artists, and a lot of the different gallery people I've worked with over the years or curators or just, you know, so many of the people I work with are, are, are themselves very creative. So, um, I think, you know, they understand what it, what it is. Um, yeah, but I do think that maybe the commercial aspect you were talking about, that's where you lead into having a, a wider reach if you're, involved with people that are not necessarily a creative artistic community and you have to dive into a more uh, business minded world. And, and I'm, I'm learning actually more and more about that. Uh, Actually, I've been making films in the last few years and there's almost no way to make a film without knowing about business. And it's probably the best possible education I could have is just um, learning about business through through filmmaking because you have to work with so many people and and that's been pretty much the the best education i could have but but two points though one i think all of that that whole amalgam of things you just listed it makes your creative voice unique and two i don't think it's as unusual as you think we have people come through here all the time and say hey look i think i would have gone further or i could go further if i would focus more on the business end but just the minutia of the daily grind of the business end i mean that's why i'm not working in a cubicle is because i don't want to do that so we do actually get a lot of people i think that are in that same creative boat oh cool yeah i think it's an interesting conundrum but i will say this the more i learn about business the less afraid of it I am and the more I find creative approaches to it. And I like, for instance, the whole idea of financing, like how you, how you raise a million dollars, you know, I may need to raise a million dollars and that number sounds absolutely insane. <laughs> like, I, yeah, you know, okay, that's a crazy number, but then you break it down and you think, all right, well, if this was a grant that's, I could actually access because this project totally has a science you know, element. I'm, I'm working with physicists and, and there are grants that can cover this. And then there's, you know, these three people that I know that work in this area that have uh, connections to companies that can support it. And you look at, um, you look at your precedents, for instance, um, if you go to any museum and you look at an exhibition, often at the very bottom, it lists all of these different um, And the same goes for films that you just start taking note oh, this filmmaker got a grant from Hyende. Oh, look, SpaceX sponsored this exhibition. And you start to notice the way that your actual project can access the right funders. And suddenly, oh, okay, well, looks like I have like 300,000 coming from this. And then I could get a matching grant that's another 300 from that. And now that I have this whole sort of setup, I'm going to go talk to this person who totally is excited about this and you 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 can put these things together in a more proactive way and not always just be waiting for like the hollywood producer who's you know well i'm i'm gonna finance you know if you do this that's what i was thinking about recently it's really tragic hearing about um all these young women who i think have had to face uh you know such awful things and everyone has in all kinds of fields but I think part of it is there's a structure of being disempowered with financing that 
is finally, I think because of the indie film world, has finally become something different because indie films are becoming able to head into a mainstream market and people like me, you know, who don't know anything about financing particularly, but if I apply the same creative, you know, enterprising ideas to how you would say, you know, get this challenge off the ground, um, you know, that I do when I try to write an opera or write, you know, create a film from scratch, you know, it's like the same kind of uh, creative work can go into that and it's not as daunting. And, um, you know, I do think it also means you have to think about the, the, all the way, the ways in which you, you um, are enterprising and, um, you know, thinking about business is very creative. So I just didn't realize that until recently. Wow. So many good points. And me being from the punk world, I'm always an advocate of DIY DIY is the way to go, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. and that that does empower people. And you make a great point there. And I also, I'm glad you brought this whole process up because I wanted to talk about your newest project, Singularity Song, which you had sent me a clip of and is absolutely beautiful. And Mm -hmm. and it combines science. I know you have, Mm -hmm. is it a Buddhist monk who is actually... (laughs) performing oh in it give That's me the so blowdown funny. on this oh wow well you saw a total preview that in fact no one has even ever seen or talked about or anything so so this is the very first time i'm ever even talking about this project publicly um basically this is my new um this is a new series that i'm that i've been for the last couple of years i it, it, I'll, I'll tell you so so that this is a short video that um is of a larger series that I'm doing where I'm making videos that are um, almost like you could call them modular and they can be scaled into different components. So this is a video that can be an art installation. It can also be part of a larger multimedia performance. And the dancer who I'm working with on also another one, his name is Oguri and his he's an incredible dancer and he's just actually kind of a local legend, um, maybe even an international legend, but in LA, he's just beloved. And, um, his name is Oguri. That's one, one, one word. And, um, he comes out of a tradition that a lot of people I think might, might more know as like a Bhutto dance form. And, um, that's a form of dance that came out, uh, from the era of post, post atomic bomb in Japan, where, uh, as far as I know that some of the early dance uh, creators of this form were reacting to the experience of, you know, the first time humans really were annihilated, you know, with a actual atomic bomb. And I had been doing research for another film that I'm making, uh, which is about stars. And I had been interviewing physicists about stars and just learning about how what we know from atomic energy has really come from our physicists who've researched stars. If you know the history of uh, the atomic bomb, these guys were working um, astrophysicists who who applied much of their information about, uh, you know, how to make the nuclear bomb from their information about, um, you know, the sun and uh, the actual nuclear reactions that happen in stars all the time. So this project that you this video that you saw is called singularity song and it's actually in a way the reverse of the idea of an exploding star or a star this is actually about black holes right and i was really 
excited to learn about gravitational waves, which were recently discovered in 2015, like definitively, because of LIGO, the Laser Infrafirometer Gravitational Observatory, which is this incredible, just un- unreal, re- really, totally unreal um, feat of science and engineering where um, physicists at Caltech, uh, namely Kip Thorne and Barry Barish, um, Ron, Ray, Ray Weiss, these three who just won the Nobel Prize a few weeks ago had this vision that they could create this gigantic machine that would have the sole task of detecting gravitational waves, which if they detected them would give them insight into what black holes are, how black holes function. And um, so all of this said, what I was envisioning is this whole thing was learning about even in talking about it, maybe maybe some of what I'm saying sounds really complicated, and it is. It's so hard for the average person to understand it, and I'm I'm the average person. I, I was terrible in math and science, and yet when I was learning about what is going on in physics, it is the most unreal, like unimaginable kind of stuff. Well, let me interject real quick because it seems that you connect with the beauty of it more than the actual logistics of it. Yeah. Well, so that's what this is about. So just, you know, since no one's seen this video, there's no good way to, because I haven't yet released it. And it's, you know, and it's, it's being applied to some film festivals and it's kind of the source material for doing more of these larger projects. I'm so in love with the work of these physicists and the, and the actual science. Like the science is so extraordinary and it's so hard to fathom because here's the reality of what LIGO discovered that two giant black holes, each bigger than 30 times the size of the sun, you know, and the sun is so much bigger than the earth, two black holes of the magnitude collided <laughs> and that that collision spawned the most gigantic explosion in the entire universe and billions and billions of years ago is how long it happened and we just got the signal two years ago like how do you wrap your head around that yeah yeah it's really the definition of mind bending but it's real that's what's so incredible is that this is real it's not i mean it's so mind bending so so I realized when I was watching Oguri dance one day and he was doing this thing and I was watching him and I just thought, oh my God, everything about the way this dancer is moving with his one little human body is sort of encapsulating the magnitude of all of what I've been just very recently thinking about because of an interview with a physicist and this was at UCLA and I thought, my God, what if I could somehow interview physicists and take excerpts of those interviews and pair them with somebody like Oguri doing, or maybe Oguri himself, if he would do this, you know, doing an interpretive movement that could be something that your eyes could watch while your ears listen to a little bit of this dialogue. And, you know, what I will say is that the piece of what I do in terms of my own creative, I mean, I guess it's all creative because of this is a creative concept, but I have been writing songs and I've been in a kind of multi-year songwriting process of writing songs about some of these phenomena, uh, like black holes and supernovae and other things within that territory. But it's so huge and hard to pin into a place that I realized I could actually attach some of the songs that I've been writing to this video, to this work, and develop it as further opera. And so the very first thing that you saw took about 
a year just to develop, and I did end up working with Oguri. But the more exciting thing about this, I mean, it was incredible to be able to work with Oguri, but I also reached out to Kip Thorne, who is the godfather of black hole theory about wormholes. If you saw Christopher Nolan's movie Interstellar, but uh, Michael Caine plays Kip Thorne in that movie, and Kip Thorne basically was the science behind that entire film. And in this larger other work that I'm creating, I have Kip Thorne written into a different script, and I was just thinking about, wow, if I could write to Kip Thorne about this project, he seems like just kind of an open-minded guy, even though he's like, there's truly no higher level physicist in America than Kip Thorne. Yeah, for sure. And he's a, you know, yeah, so I just figured, all right, you know, what, what the heck? So I wrote him an email. And he wrote back and he said, sure, come to my office. You can interview me. So I went to his office at Caltech and I interviewed him. And his voice is is actually from that interview. I excerpted pieces of his voice into this very short video, which is what you just saw and we're talking about now, which to me is like the most amazing thing. And very recently, so I also was able to have Rana Adhikari, who's the head of the LIGO space program, the Laser Infrarometer Gravitational Observatory that I was just mentioning, which discovered the actual gravitational waves. So I spoke to him as well, because when I was at Caltech, um, Kip Thorne's assistant said, you know, you really should talk to Rana. And I met Rana, and he was also just, you know, these guys are so brilliant, but they're also so generous. I, I mean, just incredible. If If you're, I think, approaching people from the right spirit they want to talk to you even if they're you know oh yeah i've learned that a lot doing what I. yeah they you know it's that's good that you learn that because it's really true and a lot of people say i can't believe you ever did that but i i try to just meet the people that i really care a lot about what they're doing because usually it's um it's been very rewarding so rana had recently wrote written to me saying that um this project that i you know this video was inspiring to him and and that to me was the greatest thing ever because i i do get tons of rejections you know i send this project along and you're in the pile of you know films that gets rejected from sundance i or know South that South feeling. all the different yep. yeah so so then you know you can say well it's so hard to get through and it's so hard to know what's going to work if i if i know that the people that inspire the actual work care about what i'm doing that to me is the ultimate goal well i gotta tell you when i saw this video my fingers almost got whiplash sending this video <laughs> to fern because i have a passion for science but fern has a passion oh, cool. for science that probably equals awesome. yours she is a oh, super cool. science geek and fern awesome. i sent that video to you and called you immediately it's like <laughs> you have got to see this fern <laughs> Oh yeah, cool. it was the combination of the you know kind of the monk that was there and the science and you know the cool thing is is um, we had Dr. Ronald Mallet on our kettle of fish show and he mm. is um, building a time machine and he is into time travel. Oh. Um, and oh. so I got into the nuance of you know quantum physics. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, in my third year of 
optician school, I decided to do my project on the quantum uh, computer storage, which had to do with light theory, oh. um, which was crazy oh. and experimental and still has not been you know, firmly planted. But even as a child, I used to go out on my hill up in Maine. Um, it's one of the few places you can actually see the Milky Way. And I would lay oh, in my cool. snowsuit in the snow and look up and just look at the stars and look at the Milky Way and imagine what was out there. And once wow. I had, you know, the intellect to start researching and looking at things, you know, I, I discovered things like black holes and, you know, gravity waves and mm. um, dark matter. Okay. And, you know, it is, it is incredibly amazing yeah. to just, and mind-blowing to think about, and it's humbling, yeah. too. Um, it makes you understand yeah. that, you know, what you do and how you are has got to be such a positive and expressive um, existence and to do nothing but try to put good into the world and uh, positive into the world. And that's what I really loved about this, this video. And I, I just, mm. I personally, for me, my takeaway, I saw such a blend of religion and science, which are two things that really mm -hmm. don't mix. Um, and I really yeah. saw that in this video and I really like connected with that because I was like, wow, look at how these are intertwined. Um, so it was, it was a very cool experience for me personally. That's kind of what I pulled from it. So yeah, it was, it was amazing so to watch. Cool. Absolutely amazing. Oh, well, I'm so glad you say that because I think I feel a sense that when all religions are actually trying to do the thing that I think is most profound is when they're trying to get us to think in the most cosmic way possible. And I think that's really what it is to be, a physicist, actually, and I think that physicists and scientists in general, it's amazing that you think of science as this sort of very far thing off to the side that's not connected to religion, but I think it's, and I don't know that I really even like to articulate a whole lot about religion, except that there's a sense that if people are going to live in peace, you know, that's, I would say that would be the goal of, of all religions, is just to try to get our human society to be really elevated and I think that, that that when you're thinking about the cosmos it's the way in which really the it's so beyond it's beyond our human comprehension and that the smartest people haven't figured it out but the things that we can learn are so massive there's almost no way that I think you you, you can't quite get into a place of contemplating on a on a higher plane which does lead us to in you know be in a more um i guess you could say that that sense of like the brain it's in, really interesting kip thorne actually was referring to this idea of the brain b r a n e and it's the most weird uh, it's such a hard concept to really even contemplate but it's this idea that within this territory of mathematics that's very far out in this distant place, there's this B-R-A-N-E, and it has within it these these rules and things that we're trying to learn. Um, and that's what the singularity actually is all about. The singularity is the center of the black hole. It's called the singularity. And it's the most mysterious force in the entire universe. And Kip Thorne and all these wonderful, amazing physicists truly say they have not figured it out. We really don't know what it is, what goes on in there. But in the center of the black hole is the information that we need to understand the birth of the universe. So we haven't figured this out. And that's why my piece called The Singularity Song, I think that's what is at the heart of all art and all um, religion is just this attempt to 
grasp the unknown and an attempt but to grapple with that magnitude. Let me jump in yeah. on this real yeah. quick, though, mm-hmm. because I feel like there is a natural order, and science was on a very good trajectory to kind of unravel all this. But you've mm. seen these political movements, and I know it's a non-politic <laughs> show, but we always talk politics. You see right. this political no, movement. Right. It is culture of just turmoil and like Trump is a chaos generator. And I feel like we've taken a big step backwards because even now the arts and this is a sign of fascism. We were just talking about this on the political Mm -hmm. show, but the arts and creative thinking and intellectualism is now starting to be looked at as a net negative among a good portion, I would say a fourth of this country is like, we don't like college anymore. We don't want to be educated. We just want to run on gut feeling because we were oppressed by facts for so long. It's so weird because I think, yeah, I I mean, well, actually I will say, you know, I have this sort of satirical internet avatar that has made fun of a lot of politicians. So there's an aspect of what I do that I, I have always thought in a strange way, now that I'm like in the new body of work, which is about, uh, physics, I guess you could say. Maybe it came from just being so constantly uh, blown away by the fact that the people who have been our leaders, not just Trump, but all over the world, there's so many really corrupt and, and I mean, he's <laughs> he takes the cake, truly. It's like, it, it's, it's such an incredible... Uh, you know, I have this character, Future Clown, and I mm-hmm. do a lot of stuff with this character, um, but it's like there's almost no clowning Trump. I mean, he he he's a clown of himself, and so he really any but dark also, mirror you can put up of him, his Twitter feed is just going to blow that no, away. Well, it's so it's so incredible in a strange way. I feel like I'm watching or we're watching a phenomenon, and nobody knows what's going to happen. And in a way, I think that's what that's what entertainment is, and that's what television is. You're like, oh, what's going to happen next? And I think if it wasn't a country like the United States where that's, you know, he's leading it. It would just be this fascinating thing to watch. Like what is like, okay, you throw the most wild and powerful person into this, you know, mix, what what's going to happen. But because he really is the leader of this country, which still feels very surreal to me, I have to say. Um, and he's, you know, the opposite of what he claims to be, you know, the voice of the people. I mean, he's as, he's as privileged as they come in our America. He's not someone that could ever know what it was like to have a actual job where you got a paycheck from someone, you know, he's always had a silver spoon and yet he's done so many things to appeal to people as though he one of them across many different uh, factions. So in a strange way, I see him as just this like bizarre, uh, like uh, shape shifter. He's able to kind of get uh he's able to get people to believe something that is the so gelatinous president as fern calls him the gelatinous yes gelatinous oh, yeah, president it's like nailing jello yeah. to a tree to find a position a that he great, actually holds and keeps very great ex- excellent metaphor yeah and i think there's something kind of profound in that metaphor too because it's like what is gelat well i think what he does however is he reflects something about everyone else I think he's so, I mean, his, he, he reflects the fact that he was put into power. I mean, it, it happened because people did sort of want to see this thing, you know, and, and our choices were, you know, we had a set of choices that nobody was happy with. So there for this guy, you know, through, all right, let's throw a curveball into our entire system. 
and I think there's a sense of um, I think there's a sense of Americanness about that in a way. You know, with, this is a, a very maverick country, and that's part of what's amazing about it. Really, uh, we're started by just this incredible maverick wild group of people i think that that came here and set out to you know do all this stuff but it's also an incredibly destructive history you know we Mm -hmm. took over a land and dominated and i think trump really just he like embodies everything that is you know really the the most extreme of america i think you know especially being in the real estate business i think also reflects this idea of like dominating land and creating ownership and and um you know he's he's this really extreme reflection of like what the ideas of america taken to almost its most most crazy could be and uh and that's what i think is really scary about him it's like he's just this embodiment of the um yeah he's the american kid so let me ask you this because this is what i'm really curious about politically Mm-hmm. Um, Trump, the Trump administration, and people always said punk rock, which is the world I come from, was always greatest during the Reagan years, like we're fighting Reaganomics mm-hmm. and that whole thing. Mm-hmm. Is this Trump thing good for your personal creative process? <laughs> because there's just such a fire in you, like, oh, man, I've uh-huh. got to do something to combat this. Even if it's not even rooted in huh. politics, I just have to put it out there. Or is he yeah, so fucking toxic and poisonous and soul crushing that it's actually a net, a net negative at the end of the day to the creative process. Well, it's so interesting to think of, uh, yeah, punk rock coming out of like, you know, Thatcher in England and Reagan here in America. And yet, if you think about those two, Thatcher and Reagan, there's something almost quaint about them now. Like, you know, Trump is practically a, like an, a, a racist. You know, the thing he said on camera is like, you know, he he really came out and said he was totally cool with assaulting women. And, you know, you, you really have to imagine he probably has done everything he said he's done and worse. And so you're like, all right, this guy is an actual, I mean, Reagan and Thatcher were not that, you know, something about them that they really put out a lot of policies that made the top down elite elitism become something that you would want to combat, you know, as a, a punk kind of with that ethos and I I love punk music myself and I you know I grew up in it more like probably late 80s and early 90s and so like Nirvana and Riot Girl movements were more my heroes but they also were deeply inspired by um the the predecessors which were the punk generation and I think right now there's this other thing which is the internet world and I think that what might be the most punk now are like these, you know, I will say like young people or I don't know, it doesn't have to be young people, but people who are doing their own challenge through the internet because it's this equaled out platform. So the places where, whether or not it's like punk music or or even um, transgressive music, if it's people who are doing things with social media or YouTube that actually are penetrating, I, I find that to be really amazing and you know i i think that's why for me personally my future clown character 
had to live on YouTube and do kind of takedown, you know, or I'm going to. But I always kind of said through this whole process that the best way to combat the chaos and the hate of this administration is just to create art is more important mm. now than it's ever been. And just mm. to live well, because nothing mm. pisses people off who are just angry and miserable than seeing you live well. And mm. I, I don't think you can combat hate with hate. I don't think you can go toe to toe with that kind of mentality. You need to outcreate mm. them, I think. <laughs> that's so cool. I love that idea. That's a great, a really great. Well, I think on the one way to feel not depressed, because it's really depressing, you know, and I go on Facebook and I actually just feel depressed because so many friends, especially, you know, I think people are really scared and, and he says such hateful things and they're, and, and they're, you on the flip side can be just feel demoralized. And I think a lot of women feel really demoralized because, you know, to have somebody that just uh, represents predatory male behavior is, you know, it's and that that went unchecked and then became rewarded. You know, you look at the president, he's he's like a trigger. I don't know a single woman who has not had some pretty awful uh, traumatic experience and that he 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 literally embodies that trauma for a lot of women and i think um to see that you know that's why i will say there's a huge difference between reagan or almost any other president i mean maybe well Clinton, trump's maybe, not a conservative you know, in a true sense of the word he's an ideologue and he's got total self-interest and basically yeah. kind of like nihilistic self-interest at that exactly yeah i don't think he even aligns at all with conservative prince well i mean you look at like, again, like the guy standing right next to him, Mike Pence, who's a classic, you know, he embodies what you want to say, okay, this is what being Christian, quote unquote, looks like in the idea of, you know, the conservative elite, you know, this, you know, he, he calls his wife mother, you know, all these things are really quaint. And then he's next to the guy who's like advertising himself as the world's biggest, you know, assaulter. I mean, it's really not the standard of the Christian right on even slight. I mean, it's really shocking that the Christian right aligned with Trump. And to me, that's where the hypocrisy of it is just so brutal where it's like, okay, well, if you can align yourself to this person that actually stands for the opposite on a moral level of what you stand for, then, then this, then what you stand for really can't be trusted. That's, and I think that that's where it's amazing to me that there's not more um, outrage over just the alignment with somebody like him. Um, and that's where it's also so demoralizing for so many people. I think people look and like, how could this become our president? He really doesn't, you know, on a, on the conservative side, no less, you know, if anything, he's like the most extreme of what you might call like, you know, people think of as, as the liberal side, which, you know, I don't agree with that term at all, like that liberals are sort of wild and philandering or whatever you want to call it, even though that they're accused of. But uh, Trump represents that wildness, unchecked and um, just self-centeredness. He doesn't reflect the conservative values. I just think that if you can't have a president that, uh, you know, if your president truly is the embodiment of hypocrisy and bad behavior, it's demoralizing. And I think that's what I feel a sense that, that so what you just said is really positive and uplifting. And I think that's what I try to do. Um, Cause I think these are pretty painful times for a lot of people. And strange times, right? Yeah. From very strange oh, yeah. times. Well, 
I mean, this, you know, I used the term hate buffet in the last podcast that we just did, but I really feel like um, some of this base, and I don't want to lump Trump supporters into, like, one category because a Trump supporter now is just, like, a Republican these days. It is, um, they're all rhinos, so Trump supporters represent different things um, anymore. Mm. But I do believe it's a pick-and-choose hate buffet with some of this base um, especially, you know, I put something up the other day and I was like, you know, if Janis Joplin were still alive, um, if Freddie Mercury were still alive, you know, would you still be listening to their music? This is the music you grew up on, the music you loved. But, but they're outraged by female. everything. They're burning their, their football jerseys and Eminem CDs because they deign to say anything that conflicts with Trump's ideology. But they also long for the good old days, and it wouldn't surprise me if they threw some Jimi Hendrix on vinyl and listened to it and not understood the Only hypocrisy he's not of what they're supporting. To rebut Trump. Yeah, I just, I, I don't like the hypocrisy either. I mean, I see it, and I, I do think the only way to combat the hate is with some sort of intellectual and logical approach, and there are the extremists on the fringes that cannot yeah. even remotely be reached. But to try to understand where someone's coming from, their perspective, their point of view, validate that they have an opinion. You don't have to agree with it, but just validate that their opinion is what it is and understand where they're coming from. That's when the real work can happen, and that's where compromise mm -hmm. can happen and understanding. But until people are willing to open their ears and open their hearts and open their minds uh, to something maybe different in, in just a uh, perspective context, then nothing is going to happen and nothing is going to be accomplished. And that's when the creative outlets come into play because that mm -hmm. allows us as artists to really, or, or, you know, podcasters to really get on that platform and, and have our voice heard. Well, what have I been saying lately? Like we have to have art imitating life, not life intimidating mm -hmm. art. And it seems Correct. like lately we've been having leaders try to intimidate art. And that's once again, down the slippery slope of fascism. Yes. Well, that strong arming can't happen. Yeah. All right, let's switch gears here because we are mm -hmm. running way over and I've got yeah. to talk about okay. Hamilton Fish before we get you out of yeah. here, Rachel. Oh, cool. um, brilliant rock opera slash film, yeah. The Lives of Hamilton okay. Fish. I myself am a big history buff and not history oh, cool. that is well known, but like really mm -hmm. odd history. Obscure like, history. Obscure. Right now I'm reading a book about um, Fighting Bob LaFollette, who was a great reformer in the 20s. And these are the oh. cats, or William Bryan Jennings. Like these are the cats that I like cool. that aren't totally oh, cool. on the average person's radar. Yeah. And watching this opera and <laughs> just kind of thinking about the process, how did Hamilton Fish, how did this headline that kind of was the catalyst for this work <laughs> – even pop up on your radar. It's so obscure. Well, you know, I was a volunteer uh, teacher for five years at Sing Sing Prison, which is this sort of notorious prison in upstate New York, and I would teach art there. And there was a um, there was a program, uh, or there was an exhibition around that time that had recruited me to be a part of a show, and they said, can you do something that had to do with the history, you know, in this area? So I thought, well, I've always been curious about Sing Sing and the electric chair there because the Rosenbergs were executed there, and I was there every week, and I just wanted to know who else was executed there. And sure enough, and this guy was really old. He went to the electric chair in his 60s, and I thought, that's interesting. And I looked up the date of his execution, and I see on the Fish, you know, it's always fun to look at 1936, an old story, and, and I saw Hamilton Fish, but I saw two different names on the same front page saying Hamilton Fish dies, 
and I'm like, well, wait, I'm looking up the Hamilton fish that was executed. Why is there another Hamilton fish on this front page? And then it said Hamilton fish dies of a famous family in the South. And I was like, this can't even be possible. I'm looking at the, what a weird name in the first place. And secondly, I'm looking at Hamilton fish, who's a absolute, just the creepiest person in the entire, probably there's no psychopath more extreme than him. In fact, I interviewed a, the, the, the most, uh, I guess, ex- world's expert in psychopaths who, who wrote books on Dahmer and uh, Gacy and just you name it. And this guy said Hamilton Fish was the worst serial killer. So I'm looking up this serial killer who's so extreme. And here I am finding another person with the exact same name who's on the other end of society, you know, super the most uh, privileged, elite person uh, who had died of a famous, rich family in New York. And, and sure enough, that was just a coincidence. And, you know, I, I I had sort of logged it as one of these things that I might come back to at some point. It was so weird. And and as I, I'm a songwriter as well as an artist, I, I ended up just doing research, just like, yeah, it's always so interesting to look at the most obscure people, historical you know, they, 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 I think that obscure people often reveal so much about history. Um, you and know, they resonate not, some of the biggest effects sometimes mm, totally. without even yeah. being known. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and some of the people that even in our present moment, you know, will go on to probably shape the rest of our, you know, as horrible as it is to say, you think, you know, I keep reading articles about this guy who did this awful thing and. Las Vegas, you know, and hopefully his name will not be remembered. He's an awful person. But at the same time, so much about what happened there and what he did reflects a kind of moment in our American history and psyche and where we are as a country. And, you know, if somebody 200 years from now sort of discovered this event and kind of reflected on this horrible individual uh, it might reveal a lot. And, and I think, you know, rather than writing about Trump, who everyone knows about, there there can be so much that comes from the more obscure people. So I started to realize that this dichotomy of the most rich and versus the most poor and the, these two men um, just reflected so many different parallels. Um, and the fact that they met their fate on the exact same day, it did feel to me a bit of like a spiritual coincidence, like, okay, there was a reason that this happened and it was handed to you to discover, you know, in 2009 or whenever I came across it. I forget when it was, but I sort of sat with it for like 10 years and and the, 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 the process to turn it into a film took that long and it took a long time for me to compose. The was it a film it idea first and the music is just the accompanying soundtrack or did the album come first and you built a film around that concept? <laughs> It it actually was the album slash songs came first. And I would just sort of throw out these songs if I was like performing in a concert. I'd say, oh, by the way, I have this weird song and it's about this guy. And I would tell a little bit of the story. And I had a friend who who runs a little gallery in Philadelphia say one time, hey, Rachel, what are you doing with the, that song thing? You know, you were, you always have these songs about this one character and what are you doing with that? And I said, Oh, I don't really know yet, but he said, maybe you want to do a project about that in my gallery. And I, I wasn't quite ready to do anything yet, but one of the reasons I love, you know, the people, for instance, like this is called marginal utility gallery. And I, I, uh, I love all these friends of mine that have these sort of small incubator spaces because 
you know, they have their day job and they manage to pay the rent on this little space that allows them to just keep something creative going and uh, it basically can incubate a whole idea. So that's, I did a show there where I did a series of videos that I just basically handheld, just shot all, all these very kind of um, quaint little scenes uh, that that reflected some of the um, songs that I was writing. And these were just rough. I hadn't really properly recorded them. But uh, I did this show and uh, people were so intrigued by it and I got such great feedback that I realized I really need to um, push it forward. And uh, I was then teaching a class at SVA, School of Visual Art, and I showed some images of that installation. And one of the students who was like a film student basically was like, why don't you make that into a film? (laughs) And I thought, oh, well, you know, I do want to make it into a film, but, you know, Yet again, the idea of how does one just make a feature film, you know, that's a huge endeavor. And daunting. this guy works for, yeah, daunting. And he, he was, just, as a student, worked for a cinematographer. And he was like, well, just try to write up a script. Like, take all these songs and write a script out of it. And I, I don't even remember exactly how he threw the idea at me. But I, I really just jumped at this challenge. And, and sometimes that is where some of my work comes from. Somebody throws a challenge at me, and I've already got, like, this giant thing that I don't know what to do with. So I I really wrote this script up, and I remember showing it to him, and it didn't work out with this cinematographer to work on it. But having done that really led me to think, okay, you know, I could break this down into parts. And I can, you know, I, had, I think I talked to him or a few other people about how to make the film, and I got my head around how to really do it and and segment it, and it almost was like a a music video. So after thing, though, I mean, yeah, so great yeah. about this film is that you know it really expands the mind. And I'm gonna full disclosure. When I first started watching this film, I am not an artsy person. I cannot draw a circle. My 10-year-old draws better than I do. I am not a good home decorator. My, my artistic creativity comes through with writing, um, with cooking. I'm really good in the kitchen. Um, but as far as art goes, I appreciate art. But, man, I am so terrible at it. So uh, music, though, has always been a part of my life and part of my soul. And I've always loved music that makes me feel. Not just the poppy, catchy, whatever you hear on the radio, stuff that actually has emotional flow to it um, and the lyrics. The lyrics and the music have to work together. But you have music and you have lyrics and then you have visuals on top of that. This really um, abstract uh, connection with this music that just flows so flawlessly and seamlessly. When I first started watching this movie, I was like, oh my God, I don't know if I'm going to like this. But my brain, it's like you tapped into a part of my brain that had not yet been opened up. And as I watched this, this became highly addictive and intriguing to me to the point to where I made the mistake of going on Google and looking up Hamilton Fish, the serial killer. And as a mother of four, uh, reading his letter was... Oh, it was so difficult. Um, I couldn't even give the contents to that letter to Kenny (laughs) because I was like, I can't even verbalize what this man said he did and went into description of what he did. But that's, again, the science geek and the the research geek in me (laughs) that I have to now know more about these men and, you know, who came from an affluent family and another man who, you know, really was a terror on society. So it opened my brain up artistically, but it also opened my brain up intellectually. So this film is, um, it, it's multi-purpose, and uh, it's, 
it really will pull people in a direction that you might not think you want to go, but I assure you, you are going to love it. It is fantastic, and it really is. I mean, there's so many dimensions and layers to this. I can't even, I can't even describe mm-hmm. it. I'm doing the best I can, but it's, it's amazing what you did. Well, let me let wow. Rachel have the last word on this because we've got to get out of here. Oh, well, I just, you know, I really appreciate that you appreciate it because I do think it's hard to know if people are ever going to find it. And, I, you know, I'm working on my next project and these things are hard to, you know, as you can imagine, they're hard to get support for. And um, I just am grateful and I, I totally agree that it's important to be creative during this really unbelievable time that we're living in. So I appreciate I would say essential. Support. And that's totally. why all my charity now goes to the arts. Whenever I see someone put mm. a Kickstarter up and I believe in their project, mm. they send them 20 mm. bucks. Because wow. I look, once again, art is more important now than it's ever been because it activates the mind. And you have all these people mm. trying to use these yeah. fascist tactics to shove us all into fucking boxes and say you will stand mm. for the national anthem and you will respect mm. this and and actors shut up and mm. and athletes shut up and musicians shut up and just mm. agree with us and the only thing you can really combat it with now besides protests and besides love to a certain extent is with art mm. and art is I mm. think art has been weaponized in a way that we haven't seen in many many years if ever well, I really appreciate that you said that because I, you know, I, I think artists can feel very demoralized at these kinds of moments in history. So I think it's exactly, you know, and you look at the era right before World War Two, and, you know, artists work was getting was getting burned, you know, in Germany. And so artists are really getting thrown under the fire at, at these moments because they are a threat to, you know, because they pr- propose alternatives to thinking differently. So yeah, I'm really, really grateful to hear you say that. Thank you. Yeah. And I'm saying it out there to everybody. I think it's totally important that we activate people's minds. Anyways, as predicted, I only got to talk to about, you know, talk about maybe one tenth of the stuff I wanted to talk about with you. (laughs) So we'll definitely have to have you back on. Um, We are running way (laughs) over. So Rachel, it has been a complete delight. Please tell everybody where they can find you online. And besides Singularity Song, what else are you working on? What's your next project that's coming out that'll be accessible to the public? Kind of give us all that information. Well, you know, I am working on an album that's going to come out uh, very soon. That's the Sublunar Society is going to actually re-release a a very recent album that I'm so excited about that I I love. And I put it out last year called Das Ram. And uh, that just can be found you know i would say if you type into bandcamp rachel mason or uh, that's where my music can be found but i try to keep it all on one website so it's also easy just rachel mason and music film all the links there um i'm also working on a documentary at the moment that's really amazing and kind of funny but my parents own this very legendary business that's at the heart of the gay community in los angeles and uh for many years, it's been a side project idea of mine to do a documentary about their store, but it finally has come to exist. So that's probably the thing that might really jump out. And that's really Circus of Books, right? It is Circus of Books. You got it. Yeah. And if you Google it, you'll see a lot about its very, very storied history. And it's just a hysterical, funny, kind of amazing, very strange little story but again it it also speaks to the times that we're living in you know i i grew up in probably the most liberal 
epicenter in America, uh, West Hollywood, which became its own city just to protect the gay population that was really under attack during a very conservative time. And we're back to it again. So it really feels important to me to make this historical piece uh, about their business. Yeah. So, and that's nature versus nurture, though, right? Because when I was looking at the background of of your parents, and I wanted to talk about circus of books, we just didn't have time to get to it. But one thing I was thinking was like, wow, could a Rachel Mason be forged in the fires of parents who are accountants in Idaho? Like, would it be the same Rachel Mason, or could she have only been kind of forged in the fires of this very liberal type of environment and this very open, I assume your parents are very open-minded, just well, from looking into the history of them? You know, that's actually what's going to make this a really amazing documentary, and the kind of funny piece of it is that not raised in the way that you might imagine. My, my mom is actually very conservative in terms of, she was religious, and my dad was more of a go-with-the-flow kind of guy. He, he, she my mom wore the pants, but my mom was religious and had, you know, a lot of expectations and very Midwestern. My parents are both actually from Chicago originally and not, not what you'd expect is like the wild Hollywood types. And I only found out later that they had this unbelievable, crazy business that was so extreme. And I always thought they were just more, your average normal middle of the road people because I so was growing up you didn't know way. they had this circus of books this adult not really uh, I mean I knew I, well I knew that this, that I always thought it was a store that was just this store you know and it's an adult video store basically and I always just thought well every store must have like an over eighteen section you know or every you know every few person's store must be you know I don't know I just I didn't realize that their store was so out there you know you don't know something until someone tells you like oh my god your parents are in the adult video gay business like that's so crazy and I and I always knew gay people and it didn't even phase me to think that was you know I just didn't even you, you know you grow up in a certain environment you're like this is the world so, you know, I didn't know that I was in a certain world. I'm Jewish. My mom, you know, we went to the synagogue where, you know, you learned thou shalt not lie down with other, you know, all the same stuff that any other conservative religious uh, affiliation has that's pretty homophobic, actually. And so it was this odd mix, you know, of, of having that kind of conservative language uh, on the religious side mixed with their really liberal out there business. And I only found out later and I did find that to be just so, how did they reconcile? I mean, it's mostly my mom. She's very religious. So, um, well, I am fighting back the urge to spend another hour talking about this because I find it's amazingly interesting, but we do have to get out of here. I am ending the um, show with Queen B. That is my favorite song off your current album. So we will end with that. Rachel, once again, thank you so much for calling in and we'll have you back on before the end of the year. We have so much more we have to talk about. Yeah, well, there will be more about the documentary for sure at that point. All right. Nice to talk to you all, and uh, have a great day. Bye. You too. All righty, guys. You. We'll be back here November 5th. We're going to take a two-week break to head out to Branson and do some filming, and we'll be back here. Who are we coming back with? Merle Hathaway, right, D? Merrill Hathaway, yes. Merrill. I knew I was going to mispronounce that name. Bad, bad, saucy, bad. All right, Merrill Hathaway from The Good Place in two weeks. Bye, guys. Bye. Thank you.
Without my troubled kind 